Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Podside Picnic. Uh, this is Pete, as always, and I'm joined by Connor, the uh, the frost to my Mordell. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I like well, that. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely. And we are talking about Roger Zelazny in general, but more specifically, uh, one of his award-winning short stories called For a Breath I Terry. Uh, Connor, uh, this was your first exposure to uh, Zelazny. Uh, reactions? Yeah. So first, I actually want to I want to push back a little bit, Pete, because um, I don't think we need to talk too much about Zelazny in general because we're going to do a Zelazny month for sure. I'm so and excited about that. Yeah, I think that's definitely happening. And it's happening for a lot of reasons. One is that, as you said, this is the first time I've read Zelazny. And I really dug it for a lot of reasons, and I dug it in ways that make me want to read more. Um, I also have heard so much about him as someone who's had this incredible influence and is like sort of close to the heart of a lot of the writers uh, that we've talked about already on the show, a lot of the all-time best sci-fi writers and and fantasy writers and just writers in general. He's a name that comes up over and over again. It seems like he's one of the sort of... Um, you know, sci-fi writers, sci-fi writers, so to speak. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, those are the sort of the general outlines of why I want to read more about him. But I mean, getting into this specific story, Pete, before we go there, what would you say, what would you say the story, which is for a breath, I tarry, I think everyone should go read it. It's a little bit on the long side, but um, what would you say that it's about, <laughs> Pete? You could go there right <laughs> now if you wanted Oh, I was just going to make fun of you because I, I texted Pete this morning. I was like, it's a very Pete move for us to agree to do a short story. And you send me what's, you know, probably a 50 page novella. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know if I could name a six page short story. There's a, no question they exist. But like, that's usually not what drives me in. I got to watch that. But at least you liked it. Um, so this story. Uh, I. If you wanted to compare it to anything out there in the real world, I would say the Book of Job. But it is—it's um, a short story about a uh, a post-human world where um, a machine uh, attempts to become uh, to gain an understanding of what it is like to be human now that all the humans are gone, and it ends up being a bet. Yeah, so I'm interested that you went to Job there because to me this is uh, more of a, cre a direct creation myth because it's about machines that were designed initially by man who is now extinct. Mankind has gone extinct. And these machines that they developed are trying, in theory at least, to restore the Earth to a state where humans could live again. But one of the flaws of the design of these machines, they don't have any 
I, any sense or they don't have any sense of how they could recreate humanity. Like that's, they're like, it needs, they need to fulfill this directive given them by humanity. But I guess the designers forgot to leave out the whole, well, and maybe could you like resurrect or recreate humans thing? Um, <laughs> but then one machine sets out to do it, but not through like, I'm going to play God, but, but through, I'm going to learn as much about human beings as I can and try to become one. Um, and what sort of makes us, I mean, this is, to, it's told very sort of mythically or biblically, um, so the level of diction and structure. And it's also, uh, one thing that it plays with a lot is that these machines, they have motivations, but that's about the only recognizable human aspect to them initially, at least because what they can't understand are feelings and emotions or anything that's not pure logic. And one of the interesting things that gets said throughout this story is the machines are always saying, well, human beings invented logic and therefore they were able to set themselves above and beyond logic, which is like a really favorable way of, of putting it, I think. But I think Zelazny did just an incredible job rendering all this. And as you said before, uh, the main machine here, who's our point of view character, is called Frost, who initially is in charge of the, the northern hemisphere of Earth, the super intelligence that's subservient to this higher intelligence that's up in the, the heavens called Solcom and is competing with this other intelligence that wants to replace Solcom called Divcom. Those are your sort of God and Satan figures. Um, and Frost meets Mordell, who's this creation of Divcom that wants to impart upon him the knowledge of humanity that Mordell has been researching. So that's sort of the serpent, serpent in the garden. And um, there's a lot this, more biblical things in the story that I won't spoil, but that's that's sort of the arc here. This, to me, is the Job part of the story, where you've got the advocate tempting and tormenting our our good buddy uh, Frost, and it's a question of whether he's going to turn his back on Solcom or not. Right, right. So there is, yeah, I mean, there's definitely the, the temptation part. I mean, he's layering in, Zelazny is layering in a lot of different mythic archetypes and also different specific parts of the Bible. Um, I think yeah. you could point, if you knew more about the Bible than I do, you could certainly point to a few different books. I just thought of Genesis because it's the one that I know best and it's certainly in there. But, sure. I, um, I, because you mentioned earlier, I was just like, there's the point at which that's why I drew that line. But yeah, um, God, it's like, on the one hand, I love the story. I, I've got a deep enjoyment of it and I'm especially excited because you seem to like it. And I'm like, Yes, those connections are really important to me when we go through these because occasionally I'll be like, "You should read this," and you're like, "Not feeling it," you know, and that's cool. But this is this is great for me. Well, I'm glad to hear that, man. I really enjoyed this, and I especially I'm gonna ha I have no choice but to set it against what we've been doing here in writing school, and that sort of gets to the heart of why I like it. And I can go deeper on this, but I think the first thing I want to note, which applies both to this one and also to the first short story we did, which was the Charles Strauss. Uh, Cthulian takeoff one about the Cthulhu in the Cold War. Um, both of them are fairly long short stories that could easily be sort of elongated and elaborated into being a novel because they have a full sort of novelistic arc to them. Um, and they posit a pretty detailed world that they, again, if you wanted to put in 300 pages of drama instead of 50, you could easily do it. Um, you just, you know, you'd have to harness all of your tools and just expand what's already there, basically. But um, they're done as short stories. And I think that's one interesting thing about these genre short stories that you like that we've seen so far. Um, they they do not that closely resemble the, the vast majority of the sort of co contemporary post-war literary short stories that I'm, you know, that we're studying and are being taught to write in a pretty narrow way, to be frank. But um, 
They do resemble, I will say this, they resemble Alice Monroe, who is a famous, you know, Nobel Prize winning Canadian writer who uh, is famous for focusing on short stories, but most of her short stories have a novel's worth of, of story in them. Um, anyway, this, uh, this does the same thing. And I think that the, the way that we generally learn to write short stories uh, in writing school now and the way that for the last few generations, last 75 years, really, Americans have been trained to write short fiction in, in primarily in the MFA setting is it's very it's more what you'd call Chekhovian. Um, speaking of Anton Chekhov, who's probably the all-time master of at least the sort of traditional realist short story. And I love Chekhov, to be clear. This isn't to denigrate him. But um, when I say Chekhovian, what I mean is you have enough, you have just enough premise to sort, you have just enough uh, world, rather, to sort of sketch out your premise and locate it in space and time. And then you have a couple of encounters or just one encounter. Usually there's just one secondary character. So you have a, your primary point of view character or narrator that encounters someone else. Uh, maybe there's a third character that they have to choose between in some capacity. Maybe it's two different lovers or whatever. Um, but there's an encounter, and that encounter renders a sort of turn where we can see the character having to make a choice in what we call the dramatic middle here at writing school. And then that choice leads to sort of to a, to their arc having a change, which might be very tiny, and the change might just be that they have this ep- epiphany at the moment, at the end, excuse me. They have this epiphonic moment at the end. Um so there's a lot of jokes that have been made throughout the years about epiphany-driven short fiction. But all of these elements are the classics, classic elements of the literary short story. Um, and they are not, none of them are necessarily absent in these longer science fiction short stories. But the science fiction short stories have a different set of goals. Again, because they are science fiction and because these are some of the smart, you know, because Pete's picking, curating for us some very smart uh, science fiction short stories. These are idea-driven and they use a lot of those tools um, to create revelations about their ideas and the worlds they're interested in more so than the epiphany about character, which is kind of at the core of the traditional MFA short story. Am I making sense here, Pete? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, it, it's, you've got me thinking about why I, I picked these stories and why, uh, why Zelazny ap- appeals to me. Uh, one of the things we were talking about before we hit record, I know that's cheating because the audience wasn't there, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, was I expressed disappointment that Zelazny is often sort of thought of as uh, an author you read in high school. You know, it, it's like as people are like, yeah, oh, I, I, I really loved his stuff. I read his Amber books, but I haven't touched anything in 20 years. And that's perfectly okay. I mean, like going through stages of your reading isn't something I'm going to discourage. But I feel like Zelazny is getting bit by his own accessibility here. Like he he does complex and interesting things with his writing, but his, his characters are... Uh, are very comprehensible. They're almost like Dashiell Hammett figures. You know, they wander around with a cigarette in their hand and they they make wry observations, but they're not uh, they're they're not alien to us in in a way that uh, some other writing might be. So he he it comes. You, you can read it on the same level that you would Louis L'Amour or something like that. But I like to think there's something more there. Oh man, I mean, if this story is any indication, there's clearly something more there. I mean, this is a very intelligently idea-driven story. Not only does it tease the kind of classic, not tease, deploy very clearly, I should say, the classic themes of what does it mean to be human, um, 
Which it does in a very smart way because it's 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 a convincing portrayal of logic machines, essentially very powerful computers that have a version of sentience, but their version of sentience is purely logic, and they talk a lot about measurement, meaning they have the ability to, to sort of computationally know the objective quantitative qualities of all kinds of things um, immediately. That's the, so they're very powerful in those regards, and they have something akin to sentience, but they don't have selfhood or consciousness in quite the way that we mean it, and the story is very much about that, that distinction, about how they don't have emotions and feelings, things that take them away from... Uh, logic. And those, again, those questions are familiar. I think what's very interesting about Zelazny, and I say this as someone who's studying aesthetics and philosophy of art this semester, um, this is also about the nature, how does the nature of artistic creation fit into that? Because these logic machines, at least the, the main one, Frost, really wants to try to create art once he's encountered it. And he and Mordell kind of argue about whether he's doing it. And they kind of conclude, well, because you don't have feelings, you're just doing something algorithmic and imitating what you've seen. And that, that is not quite the same thing as art. They're like, well, then what is art? And you know, I mean, that's, that is, if there's one central problem that troubles aesthetics and has troubled aesthetics and any theorizing about art for millennia now, and that may be irresolvable, it's that the problem, the problem with, with theorizing about art is art makes us feel things. And it's very hard to have systematic theories about those feelings, about the feelings that come out of art, the feelings that went into art. Um, there's all kinds of claims you can make about where those feelings might derive from, how they might be located in cultural contexts, how they might be replicated formally. Uh, there's all, you can say lots of things, but you're never going to fully pin down someone's actual aesthetic experience because the aesthetic experience is a feeling specific to that person. And I mean, aestheticians sort of realize this and they try to work around it, but it just, it doesn't, it's not friendly to philosophy. If it's not friendly to philosophy, it certainly isn't friendly to math or physics, for instance. Um, and the story is very much about that. So anyone who says that Zelazny isn't, isn't working with smart themes uh, that are as, as highbrow as you could want the level of idea is just not getting it, if this story is any indication. Yeah, I think it is. I I think the the thing about Zelazny, and I will save most of my commentary along this line for Zelazny Month, which was not a thing until today, so I'm totally pumped. But uh, um, Zelazny, uh, like many writers that we, we deal with, uh, they had to live in the real world and make financial choices. And so what everybody knows Zelazny for is a 15-book series, I think it's 15 books, called The Amber Novels, which are basically about uh, warring demigods that can walk between dimensions. And like people really liked those books, so he kept writing them, and he kept writing them because he had a mortgage, man. I mean, they're, they're, they're books of... They're perfectly fun to read, but uh, if you came to me, Connor, and said, hey, I need to really see the range of what Zelazny could do, I, I simply wouldn't include those books. Yeah. So, okay, we have a case of a guy who clearly has some very high-flown interests. Uh, I looked him up. He had a very good literary education, uh, and, you know, there, there's something I think – I think the – at purely the level of ideas, this is genuinely a highbrow story, in my opinion. Um, is it is it that formally? I mean, that's a debate that I, I get less and less interested in the older I get. But we'll <laughs> leave that aside. Um, yeah, and yet he wrote he wrote commercial novels to make money, and and like you know, <laughs> much respect. I mean, again, if there's if there's one thing that I'm forced by the market to be interested in, it's that I have to 
teach myself to be increasingly cognizant of what readers like and what they would find interesting about my work and to kind of find the crossroads between the things I care about and the things that some significant group of readers might care about. That's just the name of the game if you want to be read. If you don't want to be read, if you don't care, if you don't care about making money from your work, then, you know, more power to you and go forth. Um, but, you know, much like a lot of these genre writers or all the genre writers that we've dealt with, because we've dealt with uh, big ones who've been successful, you know, I, I think there's actually a tremendous amount of value in asking what readers are interested in why and then in asking, all right, if you can hook them in X, Y, and Z way, how do you pull them closer to what you care about? Like, can you give them something distinctive that begins with the appeal of the thing that they generically like? Um, and, you know, again, Zelazny seems like a guy who probably spent his life working through a lot of that. It's a shame he died fairly young. I think he died at 58. He might still be alive today, um, if not yeah. for that. Yeah, I, I remember uh, uh, hearing about that. I, um, I was, uh, it was in the 90s, and... There was a uh, video game that had just come out, but I think it was called Donner Jack. But it was it was uh, he participated in the creation of it, and so I was I was installing it, and I was all pumped. And this little slip of paper fell out of the CD box, and it was like a little memorial thing about Zelazny. And I'm like, oh fuck, are you kidding me? Like that's how I found out he was dead, you know? But uh. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, well, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, but it's it's it, the the relationship with authors are, is very interesting. It's it's one way. It's it's over time, and like you you usually find out that that you're not getting any more books because the books stop. You know, like that. That's how you hear about it. I mean, unless unless you're googling them every day. Yeah, I could tell Pete, the farther we get with the show, the more interested you are in tracking the passage of time through your journey as a reader and thinking about the journey of these writers uh, and the ones that were alive when you were reading them as a kid and are no longer with us and how their books travel back and forth into and out of obscurity. And of course, the general trend for every writer is over time to generally trend towards obscurity with rare eruptions of being dragged out of obscurity. Um so that's something that I think we're going to be talking about a lot more on the show over time because it's something that clearly interests you. Am I right? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I'm like, wow, I feel seen. And I mean, that that might be, <laughs> I mean, some of that's probably is just a straight up mortality thing. You start thinking about your death and the, and the course of your life. And uh, books have always been my roadmarks. So like tracking what I've done through my life sort of based upon what I read as I go through makes sense to me. But I also, uh, like, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that in some ways this is about exploring genre fiction together and and seeing intellectually what we can do with it. So if I go too far in that direction, like, throw something at me. Man. Oh, no, no. I think it's, I think that's as interesting as anything else. I think, uh, you know, especially where my life is now, I'm, like, trying to narrow strategically narrow my sense of what my work is doing and try to articulate it more and more specifically to myself. And I'm doing that in the context of writing school where you often, not to name any names, you often encounter people who want to narrow it for you, um, which doesn't interest me at all. I mean, I'm never, I'm never going to respond. I mean, I will respond to that kind of thing, but only through various forms of insurrection, which may or may not be productive depending on what happens. But <laughs> I just, you know, I know myself well at this point, like no one's ever going to be able to tell me what I can be or what I can do. It just doesn't work that way for me. I can tell myself those things, but no one else can fully tell it, but they can prompt me at least. 
Um, and so I, I gave that spiel just to make the point that like, what's so great about this kind of exploration is it gives me the ammunition to, as I am for practical and artistic reasons, force to sort of narrow the sense of what specific projects of mine at least are. Uh, this podcast always gives me a chance to erupt beyond that or to disrupt that process of narrowing, at least for, at least as a reader. And I think this Lazing story is such a great example because it, I think it's a absolutely killer short story that doesn't have many literary shortcomings, in my opinion. And it would never, ever fly in the writing school settings that I'm in now. And that's not to take anything away from Zelazny or from writing school. It's just to say, like, hey, I mean, there there is so many modes of doing this well. And I don't think you have to I don't think that we have to say this story in particular. I don't think we have to say any of the self-deprecating things about that one is about genre fiction. The prose is functional and direct. I mean, it's working in this very uh, mythic mode where it's just going to tell you what's happening uh, as many myths often in translation will do. Um, you know, so I don't think the, nose, the prose itself is brilliant. I think the rendering of the logic machine characters moving away from their identities as logic machines mm-hmm. is really brilliant and is literarily more than adequate. I think the level of theme that surpasses the vast majority of MFA era fiction for being as far as, far as being interesting. So, um, and the rendering of the world, of course, is interesting as well. So, I mean, look, I don't think you need to make excuses for this kind of story. Um, I've run into a lot of genre short stories in my life that I do think have problems at the level of prose. And if I'm going to be real here, I enjoyed that Charles Strauss story, but a lot of it is fairly corny. Um, oh, yeah. This is not corny at all. For a Breath I Terry, it is not at all corny. It's it's a rather uh, profound, kind of sonorous, careful, um, undeniably epic story that I rec- would recommend to anyone because it's a lot of fun and it's very interesting. <laughs> Can we talk about beta? Please. Well, uh, I was going through this uh, with, with half a mind that y- you might not like it, and I wanted to be able to engage with that discussion. So I just I tried to look at it with new lo- new eyes and say, what doesn't work about this story? And one of the easy things to fall on is that one of the characters, beta. Um, Ultimately, she becomes the the only female character in the novel, and oh, spoilers, Pete. <laughs> sorry, uh, but no, you're right. <laughs> she is. Uh, she has all the depths of a a, a Stephanie Myers character. <laughs> I mean, like sh- there is there is no there there. She yeah. literally just exists to be an alternate to Frost and. I, I think that's a shame. Uh, okay, so if we were to if we were to get out, uh, if we were to be as critical as we could, I agree. The fact that the uh, the kind of new re-rendered Eve character, because at the end here we're back in the Garden of Eden, kind of reverse engineered our way into it, which is a very. I mean, again, this story is very interesting. That it kind of like goes backwards uh, to get you back into the garden, and that Mordell is kind of like the snake running running reverse in a strange way. Um, it, yeah, that 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 beta. So beta is the uh, protector, so to speak, or just in charge of the southern hemisphere. It's it's Frost's uh, counterpart, also run by Solcom. Um, Frost, we're told, and again, this, this could be problematic. We're told that Frost is superior to Beta, even though they have the same job. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then Beta sort of challenges Frost initially, but then backs down and then becomes the female counterpart to Frost. So yeah, I mean, I would say that that 
if you're doing that, I don't know. When was this story written? Like the 60s? Yeah, 1966. I was I also mean, disappointed that she was paid less. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is this is a lifetime ago. This is, I mean, God, this is like this is before the Vietnam War protests had even ramped. I mean, this is a different world we're occupying in this story. So, I'm willing to give Zelazi some slack. This is pre-sexual revolution, for Christ's sake. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah, I mean, but again, if we were to say like, are you doing this 50 years later? You would you would think harder about that probably because it doesn't it doesn't look very good. I'm with you 100. percent um, I think that just a purely conceptual level, like if you look at it as if you were like if you wanted to give it let him off the hook, you would say, let's look at this as reverse engineering of Genesis kind of and run it run Genesis in reverse. And it's like, well, oh, I like that. Yeah. Although even at that level, like Frost, then you know, Frost then becomes the Eve character because Eve does have more agency of a kind, arguably in Genesis. Someone else who someone who knows theology very well is going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. But OK. Anyway, this is good. This all gets very interesting. But um, yeah. I, you know, fair enough. Like there, there are certain things of this you could not reproduce fifty over fifty years later. Um, well, there's there's another thing, and I honestly I think we're gonna have to deal with this more later. But I want to bring it up now because I want you to be thinking about it because I think you're best equipped to handle it of the two of us, and that is what Zelazny likes to do is to recreate mythic elements as science fiction. And he borrows myths from all over the world. And that is something you need to be delicate about. Like, you can't just borrow people's cultures and make a puppet show about it. And that's more or less what he does with the best of intentions. And it's something we're going to have to examine as we move through his writing. Uh-oh. Is, is, the, la- is the big reveal of the last month going to be that he's canceled? I, well, I mean, everybody's canceled, man. But... <laughs> But my, my my point is like if we talk about him, we're going to have to talk about that too because there there are people who care about it very much. Frankly, I don't like I his his writing was important to me. I think he he uh, he took nothing but photographs, left nothing but footprints when going through these mythic stories, and that's just fine with me. I love that you you phrase that like a park ranger. All right, um, <laughs> I I'm I'm very interested to discuss that further. Uh, I, what I'm going to do right now is just do my normal thing. I'm going to read from the opening of this story and give people yes. a sense of what we're actually talking about. They called him Frost. Of all things created of Solcom, Frost was the finest, the mightiest, the most difficult to understand. This is why he bore a name and why he was given dominion over half the earth. On the day of Frost's creation, Solcom had suffered a discontinuity of complementary functions best described as madness. This was brought on by an unprecedented solar flare-up, which lasted for a little over 36 hours. It occurred during a vital phase of circuit structuring, and when it was finished, so was Frost. Solcom was then in the unique position of having created a unique being during a period of temporary amnesia. And Solcom was not certain that Frost was the product originally desired. The initial design called for a machine to be situated on the surface of the planet Earth, to function as a relay station and coordinating agent for activities in the Northern Hemisphere. Solcom tested the machine to this end, and all of its responses were perfect. Yet, there was something different about Frost, something which led Solcom to dignify him with a name and a personal pronoun. This, in itself, was an almost unheard-of occurrence. The molecular circuits had already been sealed, though, and could not be analyzed without being destroyed in the process. 
Frost represented too great an investment of Silicon's time, energy, and materials to be dismantled because of an intangible, especially when he functioned perfectly. Therefore, Silcom's strangest creation was given dominion over half the Earth, and they called him, unimaginatively, Frost. So, you've got, you're getting teased there with a lot of, like, what's gonna, what is so unique to Frost? Uh, I mean, it's, uh, again, that prose that I just read is very functional and very direct and to the point, and it can be. I think that's one of the, one of the things that one learns from genre fiction. If your story is good enough, and the, uh, the things that give it weight uh, are strong enough to carry us through, um, your prose can just be direct and functional. That is writing school heresy, uh, where we function on a sentence and we are initiated into the cult of the sentence. And to be clear, I love a good sentence, and I strive to do something more than just be direct. I do think that it's worth noting that across the history of literature, if you read a lot, you're going to read a lot in translation, and very few translators are either going to be brilliant enough or even make an effort to convey as best they can the artfulness of the prose uh, that they're translating into a different language. And it's very hard to do that no matter how brilliant you are. And, and yet you respond to it. And this, is, this gets to my deep theories about prose uh, and the form of the novel in particular, where I don't think sentences are quite as important as writing school thinks they are. But that's a different topic. <laughs> um, anyway... <laughs> well, it makes me think, honestly, uh, because one of the things I have seen in science fiction from 1966 to today is exactly the sort of changes you are talking about. I mean, the writing does tend to be more, uh, what, flowery now? Then well, it was I mean, then? you could say lyrical if you want to be nice, but I mean, I think, are okay. you saying, you're saying that broadly you think that genre writers now are asked to pay more attention to their prose and its distinctiveness and what it can do. Yes. Yes. And I mean, and, and I'm not even saying that's bad. I just like it. But before I made a call on it, I would want to know if Zelazny felt would feel like he could succeed on today's terms. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I know that Zelazny was, again, had a great literary education uh, up at the graduate level and was a poet. And so I think that if Zelazny we're writing today, he probably would write much differently at the level of the sentence because he would feel like he was safe in doing so and that writing in a more uh, intentionally artful way would be rewarded in the market. So, I mean, that, that you know, the market has shifted, the culture has shifted, which preceded, you know, which, which chicken or egg came first there? Good question. But, I mean, I think that 50 years later, he would be working in a much different mode on this kind of thing. Um, would that be better or worse? Don't know. I do think that the big rewards of sci-fi often come from the ability to focus on the structuring idea rather than uh, the artfulness of the, of the formal artfulness um, at the level of sentence in particular. But there's a debate to be had there. But I think that Zelazny is someone I feel, for, I, even though not very much about him, I think, I think I could, you could predict that he would calculate that the market would reward him differently for that kind of thing now. So, uh... uh Briefly off topic, if, if I may, um, one of the things I've been thinking about as we've been going through this is that there are authors who are um, I, mutants is the wrong word, but they don't they don't fit in the main path of how writing is done. And I think about like the guy who wrote Flame Song, who based all the who had all that stuff with Indo pure. European languages, or that guy who was a janitor in Chicago who wrote 50,000 pages of that 
that one novel and and decorated his whole apartment with it. You know the one I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. That was like the children rebelling against the evil intergalactic empire or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and like, wow, that's like I, I, I wouldn't do a, uh, uh, an entire podcast just on that guy, but I could see like a month where we do episodes about different people like that that are – like in their own way, they're like I, I either I do not understand or choose to reject every single thing about the way this type of writing is supposed to be done, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go off on my own path. I would be very interested in taking a closer look at some of those guys. Well, I think you should feel free to read all fifty thousand pages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I'm going to, but oh, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Well, and I mean, it is it is very fair that I have a tendency to say, "Well, here's something you could just look over real quick, and we're good to go." And I pass you something that's three hundred pages long. Not okay. Good point. <laughs> I, I I find it very charming. The story isn't actually that long. I don't know how long it is in the book edition you have, but it only took. Didn't take me that long to read. But when I think short story, I think of like 15, 20 pages, maybe a little bit longer. But I mean, that's it's fine to deal with something a little bit longer than that. Um, yeah, so I think the one thing you're, you're getting at is, is again, back to Zelazny, like when we use the word genre fiction, it tends it often sounds derogatory because it points at fiction that we think is not aiming as high in certain ways because it wants to make money and obey certain conventions for certain readerships. And we've been at those a million times, but the, I, I think that's, you know, ultimately fallacious because literary fiction is just another genre and genres are themselves commercially constructed and culturally constructed and shift over time. But the commercial construction thing is especially salient today because the way books are packaged, it determines who's going to read them. And it's all very specific and very, very, very capitalistic, et cetera, et cetera. This is familiar territory for us. I think the interesting point, though, is you're, you're talking now about genre writers who get pat, who are discussed in those terms of being a genre writer and are not you know, given the, cre- the, uh, the credit of being a literary writer, but are doing something that is not commercial and are doing something that is like comes from a place of pure artistic intention regardless of how it works, like the intention is pure. The intention is not, and again, it's not to knock Zelazny or anyone else, but it's not Zelazny saying, well, I'm interested in X, Y, and Z, but I also have bills. And to pay my bills, I'm going to do this. Um, you know, and tomorrow we're recording on the John M. Ford things, which we've discussed a little bit already on here, but he was someone who also had, was a genre writer, but had a lot of pure unalloyed artistic ambition, which he pursued to an extent, but also had to pursue other things to make money of which he was constantly short. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a tension within genre fiction. And I think that out that laymen like myself, before they learn about these things, often think that, you know, the choice to be a genre writer is a crass commercial one. And that's so far from being the case. And I think that you as a reader, Pete, are a great exemplar of this because it's not like, um, it's not like you've been a genre reader because you have always been looking just for pure escapism and to enjoy yourself. I mean, it's very deep at the core of your being and it means something to you much more than just, I want some candy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and 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 thank you for putting it that way. It's, uh, it's 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 an interesting relationship, and it's it's again one of the cool things about this podcast is that we're able to explore it from both sides. I think this is the first time on the air where you you have explicitly said, uh, like literature writing is genre writing. 
Oh, um, yeah, that might be the case. I think, I think this, is, this is a key point. I don't think that literary fiction actually has... I don't think literary fiction as a whole has this claim on superiority that it thinks it does. I think that certainly a lot of the things that are most artistically ambitious and accomplished will get classified in contemporary terms as literary fiction. That, I think, is very true, um, partly because a lot of that work isn't as interested in accessibility and readability in the way that, you know, uh, probably a lot of Zelazny's work is, or the work of Octavia Butler or Ursula K. Le Guin, et cetera, and so on. Um, the one thing that genre fiction tends to have going for it is a kind of basic readability and a friendliness to a wide range of readers, whether they care about it or not. Literary fiction uh, can be allowed to not have that, but I want to I want to be very clear here. That's you know, I mean, the way that literary writing gets bought from writers, gets positioned in the market, in the publishing industry, a lot of the the questions that are being asked of that are the same questions that are being asked of genre fiction. You know, um, you know, there there isn't that much commercial room ultimately for like experimental or really aesthetically challenging work. It exists. Yeah. But I think for the arbiters, the commercial arbiters of literary fiction to claim that's what they're they're forwarding for the most part, that's just a lie. That's not true at all. <laughs> so yes. once you've had those realizations, it's like literary fiction is just another subgenre. And the vast majority of what, what the vast majority of what gets labeled literary fiction is no more intellectually or aesthetically accomplished than the average Le Guin book. And there's a, there are a few things out there that might have a claim to that. But it's hard to be more intellectually accomplished than Le Guin. I will, I will believe, I will buy. I think and do believe myself that as much as I love her, there are certainly writers out there that are a little bit more. That they're just more aesthetically finely honed, especially the level of the sentence. But I've already said in this podcast that I don't care that much about sentences. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you know, again, this is all complicated, and we're going to keep talking about it because it's very important to me. But uh, you know, one last thing I want to add on there: you mentioned writers that are that don't fit into clear categories. I am, for better or worse, one of those. My writing kind of helplessly straddles the uh, literary genre, various literary genre divides, and it can be a perilous position. I hope that it's a position that's not doesn't always feel as perilous as it does before you sell a novel. But uh, it's definitely a strange place to find myself, and I have this compulsive need to sort of cross genre boundaries or shatter genres. Um, it's just how I operate. It seems like so. Maybe well, I'm Connor, that, yeah. if. If the worst happens, I will break into your apartment and photograph the walls and attempt to get that published for you. <laughs> it's going to be really interesting. Whatever this next project, my second novel gets pitched, you know, hopefully it'll sell in a way that I'm happy with. If it if I pull back on it or we just can't sell it, it's going to be really interesting to see where I go with it because like, you know, I mean, at a certain point if you believe in your work, you probably should just push it out into the world in some form. Um but also, like, I mean, we've talked about we've talked about the, the different calculations that one one makes with that on here before. But um, I mean, conversations like this make me feel better about all of that because, like, I think once you're honest with yourself about all the negotiations that accomplished writers do, all the calculations they have to make, um, mm -hmm. you know, and the way they have to balance their artistic intuitions or deeply held beliefs uh, and desires against pragmatic concerns. I mean, once you're honest with yourself about that, you you don't you're inherently not going to feel as bad about what you're doing because they there is no writer uh you know in the contemporary era who hasn't had to have a lot of those thoughts regardless of how well they worked out for them commercially. Well, I mean, I I'm I'm torn on the on the one hand I want you had to have uh 
uh, commercial success because I know that that's valuable. Welcome to capitalism. And, you know, it's you doing well in that sphere actually benefits me as long as we're being selfish about it. But uh, like on another level, I'm just kind of enjoying watching the direction you're going and how, how you're growing and changing as a writer. And on that level, I don't really give a fuck. Like, I just want to see what you're going to do next. Oh, thanks, man. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think things are going well. You know, it's just been a really intense fall term of sort of working like crazy on this novel and learning in ever greater detail what sort of readers I can trust like about it and what I do well in general. And there are some things I think that are key that I've discovered I do well, that this project does well. And then more, perhaps more importantly, understanding my weaknesses and trying to begin shoring those weaknesses up. Um, uh, yeah, it's been really fruitful. It's been kind of exhausting at times. But, uh, you know, I mean, if, that, if, you're, if your complaint about writing school is that in your first semester you may have learned too much and may have done too <laughs> much work. I mean, come on. That's, <laughs> that's a good problem to have. And that's kind of where I'm at. So, um, yeah, it's been really interesting. And uh, I like how all of our conversations end up devolving into talking about my writing career. But I will say Zelazny is someone who gave me some interesting ammo to think about it because I, I look at this story and I I feel like I have – the more I've read on this pod and the more I've been here at writing school, the more I've gained the tools that allow me to uh, understand the kind of things he was considering in this story. And it's damn good. I mean, we're going to have to read more by him because it's clear that there's a really interesting, powerful intellect behind what he's doing. And that's the thing that I perhaps find most captivating in science fiction. It's why I love Le Guin, for instance. And I feel like Zelazny is probably a peer of hers in both time, uh, time and space and aesthetically speaking. Exactly. It's one of the more interesting things about it is that like the the authors that were cropping up at the same time, especially right then, was such a weird group. And uh, the, the directions they went and the choices they made, like I think that stretch of time between uh, like 1960 to 1979 was the most interesting to me for just what you're talking about. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that, that seems to be like, if we're looking backwards, it seems like American sci-fi um, <laughs> probably had. It's funny we use the term "golden age" to describe uh, a, a particular period, but I feel like the real golden age, in like a hierarchical sense, was what we call the new wave, and it's like the late sixties yeah. to the seventies. <laughs> well, you know um, the 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 civilization that digs us up and uh, like makes their own decision. We'll probably call that section the golden age instead of the older one. Right. The older one, that Highland will be the Bronze Age or whatever. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> the Dark Age. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been very good. I'm going to recommend one more time. Read Rogers Lasney for a Breath I Terry. I posted the link on Patreon. Uh, easy to find PDFs of it out there, mercifully. Um, I think we're probably getting close to being done with this episode. What do you think, Pete? Anything you want yeah. to add? Yeah. Not really. It's it's the glory of a short story episode. Is like we 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 could roll right through, do our analysis, and we're here. I I hope everybody enjoyed it. And if you haven't read it, go go read it. Just just do it. It's like you can get the PDF online. There's you can buy the book at a bookstore. Do this thing. Yeah, and uh, read more Zelazny because I know I will. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.